All right, guys, welcome back. We are speaking to a pro today, a pro of the gut, microbiome labs, which I'm sure a lot of you already have in your pantry and your shelf. You've been taking it, but uh, let's talk to the guy that actually made it for you. So one of the founders of Microbiome Labs, uh, who started this company some time ago and made sure now that every functional medicine doctor across uh, the world is now selling it, making you healthy. We're gonna dive deep into why, you know, what's going on, why were these things formulated? Uh, and why is it so important to maintain starting at the gut? So first of all, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, it's awesome to be able to speak to you because this this area is something that there's a lot of buzz about. You know, for some people, it's old news, but for the most part, for people, it's newer information. Yep. Uh, and you've been doing this for a while now. Like, when did Microbiome Lab start? Actually, formulated all the plans for the, the company, the our focus, our research, and the products in 2012, and we launched Megaspore uh, in January of 2013. So, okay, cool. Yeah, we're going on, uh, I think, nine years now. So what was the impetus? Like, I, that's a, a, a big jump to say, hey, we need to start making uh, this product for people's gut. And where did that start? Yeah, in fact, uh, it, was, um, it was almost a, a, a lucky mistake, if you will, in, in many ways. I had a research company prior to this, a company called New Science Trading and LiveSmart, where I actually would do um, conduct clinical research for other companies. So design okay. and run clinical trials for them on their nutritional products. We also had uh, a kind of a technology development company, which is part of the New Science, where we develop different ingredient technologies and sell it B2B to other supplement companies. Right. Uh, I would do formulation work and all that. So I had this large uh, multinational company, well, actually national company, not multinational company brand that came up to me and said, hey, uh, we really want to do a deep dive on probiotics. They had a pretty successful product in the market, but they were seeing a lot of different competitors coming into the space. So they really wanted some next generation of a probiotic. They also mm -hmm. wanted us to investigate this issue of, you know, refrigeration versus non-refrigeration. Does that, you know, what's the science behind that? Does that make any sense? Um, dosing, you know, do we need to be at 100 billion, 200 billion as the numbers mm -hmm. kept scaling up and up? How many strains do we need? And just basically everything around the whole probiotic product development and marketing and so on. So we started doing a deep dive on it. And, and I looked at it for the first time as, as a microbiologist. And up to that point, I kind of considered probiotics lightly as a consumer, but I never really used any because it just intuitively didn't make a lot of sense to me how some of these things were, were done and formulated. But then when we went through this deep dive and we started digging in, we came to find out that there's a lot of nonsense in the industry, right? Right. No surprise, you know, that's that's just the nature of our industry. There's a good portion of it that, that will be nonsense. And then in talking to lots of doctors and practitioners, many kind of shared the same issue, like, yeah, I don't really know. I believe that probiotics should work, but this one and this one and this one I've tried don't really seem to do anything, or this one that worked for a little bit, now it stops working. And I kind of kept hearing mm -hmm. the same frustrations around the concept of probiotics. And then as we went through the process, we discovered these bacillus endospores and, and just looking at the science and looking at it from a microbiologist perspective, it became very clear that that was kind of the next generation of probiotics, right? Like this is the right approach. These are what the strains will likely do. Here's all the clinical research you should do to validate that. And this is how you would formulate the product. So I actually created the Megaspore formula to give it to another company. 
Oh, right? wow. and, and so we went when, and by the time we were done with the work, the company had changed ownership because they got bought out by, by a larger group. And so the new owners were kind of like, yeah, we're not really interested in this. There's nothing we can do about it with it. So we said, okay, we'll take it. And then to me, that information was just too compelling. Mm -hmm. So we actually took it to a number of different companies, ones that I've worked with in the past, uh, either as a consultant, formula development, and all of them passed. And the, one of the main reasons why they passed on it was we were proposing a probiotic product that was 4 billion CFUs, right? And they couldn't wrap their head around how are we going to sell a 4 billion CFU? Our product is 35, 40 billion CFUs, mm -hmm. right? The value in the probiotic was all tied to the CFU count, which was one of the things we were disproving is that there's no scientific validation to that increasing in CFU count. So everybody passed on it. And um, we were basically like, this is too important, you know, that this product can really make a difference in people. Um, and lots of the stuff out there is really not doing much of anything. We got to get this out. So that's when we decided to do it ourselves. So if any one of those companies decided to move forward with it and could see kind of the, the vision and value of it, we wouldn't be here today. You know, we wouldn't be, Microbiome Labs wouldn't exist and so, Megasport wouldn't exist. It'd just, it'd be under a different name. So you put your entrepreneurial hat and said, this is too good. I can't let it go. And exactly. that drive, you know, the drive got to you, which often happens with entrepreneurs like us. So, and, and, then, and, uh, and I kept thinking about like what the thought that couldn't escape me was just thinking about the people that are going out and spending their hard-earned dollars mm -hmm. buying products with the hope that it's doing something, right? And it's not actually doing anything. And I'm sitting here going, this can really help, right? So we yeah. had to do it. I mean, we're so compelled. And, and that's kind of how we built the company quite aggressively because we went out there with this like aggressive passion to get this in the hands of people right um and that was that was a big propellant that drove us and it seems like you started from sort of the context of precision because often when it comes to the supplement industry you know there's there's pixie dusting which is unfortunate yep. you know, a little bit of an ingredient to make a claim on a label and you feel like you, you think you're getting it but you're really not at least yep. not to a therapeutic dose or there's you know overdosing where you may, there's certain, we've learned genetically certain ingredients that will literally have the opposite effect when you give too much, right? Yes. Uh, or you're just, you're just peeing it out. It's like expensive yellow pee. So what's the point? Yep. So, but what you said is here's the precise tool that people actually need. Uh, it's we're not, we're not going marketing first. We're going efficacy first. And here, right. And, and that's what you built. So we've always believed that the gut is the sort of second half of personalization we deal with genetics we understand here's the human blueprint yeah. here's foundationally how you're wired so i can without meeting a person understand where they're suboptimal where they need support how they behave how they feel it's all mm -hmm. wired all those chemical reactions are all driven by genes but that is kind of like this human that's wrapped around this gut mm -hmm. where there's a there's a whole other system you yeah. know uh firing and doing its own thing there's a lot of companies today that are trying to decode that. Yeah. And it seems like you kind of skipped a step and said, well, even once you figure it out, people still need to know, what do I do about it? Totally. Right. Yeah. So yeah. we can decode every one of the trillions or billions of bacteria strains. But if you're not, if there's no product in the end, you've got information, but no action item, which is awesome in terms of what you did. So how important do you think it is to understand, you know, and, and sequence and put AI to the actual gut microbiome versus the solutions that work? I think if we went with that, with the AI machine learning data science approach first, it would be years before we had anything that had any positive impact on people, 
right? right. Because that that is a abyss that you can just go deeper and deeper and deeper in. Yeah. And there's a massive translational gap there, yeah. right? So like between what you discover and how do you make that a practical solution, there's a massive gap. Mm-hmm. That's actually one of the things that, that uh, I am and, and a big group of us are working on right now at Novozymes, which, which is our new parent company. Mm-hmm. They have a massive investment in data science and they've acquired a couple of companies in that space. And, and we are having regular meetings on how do you use the insane amount of technology and data that's available in data science and, and then how do you make that relevant to people? How do you make right. it a product that changes lives, right? And we are far away from that. And so fortunately, what we were able to do in the interim was figure out some basic things that we need to change and improve in our microbiome that can be done with the right probiotic strains, the right prebiotics, the right polyphenols. And and a lot of that is just taking clues from nature, right? Mm -hmm. how How we subsisted throughout the course of human evolution. What were the things we consumed to build this microbiome, mm-hmm. right? What, were the, what are we finding out from the hunter-gatherer times that exist today when you compare them to the modern uh, you know, mm-hmm. industrialized human, right? When you look at those gaps, that's where you start to find the magic in the simple things you can do to start bringing back our microbiome more towards its natural state. And in the meantime, sure, let's dig, dig deep into and dive into the whole you know, massive data science and, and see if we can get AI to make some sense of all that. But we have to do something now too, right? right. And, and that's, the, that's the balance we're striking. Fortunately, we went with the let's do something now uh, philosophy first. And then now that we have the capability and resources, we're looking into the other side as well, right? Yeah. So maybe some things that come out, but it, it'll still be a couple of years. So the goal is to move the needle and get some get people an outcome, right? Yeah. And essentially, that sort of anthropological route you took, which we could just study people and understood what we're wired for. The the way we live today, it's kind of like so. Our DNA is two hundred fifty thousand years old. We are mm-hmm. the same as people of that time. Mm-hmm. It's only in the last ten thousand years that we've been sort of agricultural and civilized. It's only the last couple hundred years that we've been industrial to this degree that our guts are subjected and it's only really the last generation that our food supply is what it is now. So what you're saying is that huge data, great data is dumb until you know what it's telling you. And somebody Mm -hmm. has to go build something out of it. Right. Other than that, it's a bunch of information that is not going to drive anything. Meanwhile, you just went through a simple, like, here's what people did for 250,000 years. Here's what's where we're doing wrong today. Let's fill the gap right? Let's, totally. let's fix it, right? And, and that's a very simple solution. So how important is it to then actually understand your gut, like your microbiome to taste, for example, like a biome type test to know whether you need this or not? Or is this sort of like, no, everybody needs this because we're all suffering from the same environmental exposures and poor food, etc. Yeah, so the, the, that's a really important question. And, and that was a question that we set out to answer about five years ago, right? So one of the most common questions we got from clinicians as they're trying to understand the microbiome and trying to utilize the microbiome in their practice, the most common question we got is, hey, I have a patient, you know, my first patient of the day is dealing with diabetes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know something's wrong with his or her microbiome, right? Because that's, that's connected to these metabolic dysfunctions. But can you tell me how I figure out what's wrong with that person's microbiome and what I should do about it versus my second patient who's coming in who's autoimmune, 
I know the microbiome plays a role there, but how do I know what's wrong with that microbiome and how do I fix it, right? And then the third patient's coming in with reflux. And I know the microbiome plays a role there, but what's wrong with that and how do I mm -hmm. fix it, right? So when you look at these seemingly unrelated conditions that present very differently, diabetes, autoimmune disease, maybe it's on the skin and then reflux, right? They seem completely unrelated. Although intuitively and based on, on uh, research, we know that the microbiome plays a role in each of those. But the big question is what is wrong with each of those microbiomes and how do you go about fixing it? So that was the big conundrum that we had. And we started digging into the research and mapping everything out and just kind of putting all the science together. And what we come to find out, which is actually a bit of a relief, is that the dysfunction in the diabetes gut is exactly the same as the dysfunction in the reflux gut. And it's mm -hmm. exactly the same as the dysfunction in the autoimmune gut, right? Mm -hmm. Even though those conditions are seemingly unrelated because they present so differently, the underlying factors in a dysfunctional microbiome that allows for those conditions to flourish is exactly the same, right? Mm -hmm. All three of those conditions have low diversity in the microbiome, which provides the risk factor for developing those conditions. All three of those microbiomes have low levels of keystone species like Acromantia, like Fecalum bacteria, like Bifidolongum. All three of those microbiomes have uh, low levels of short chain fatty acid production and other postbiotics. All three of those microbiomes also have intestinal permeability, mm -hmm. right? So they have high levels of LPS and other endotoxins in circulation. And the studies on the pathologies and the pathophysiologies are all there, right? If you look at the pathophysiology of the reflux, uh, of reflux disease, you'll find it's the same exact dysfunctions that lead to it as diabetes, as depression, as anxiety, as Alzheimer's, right? So that was very revealing to us. And we mm -hmm. found that there are certain universal throats within a healthy microbiome that we all need, right? So we all need to deal with intestinal barrier dysfunction. We all need improvements in uh, diversity. We all need more keystone species. We all need more uh, postbiotics like short chain fatty acids. So then that became foundational for us, right? Now you can do a microbiome analysis, like we have one called BiomeFX, right? Which is a whole genome sequencing analysis that really looks at functional aspects of the microbiome. So we, we've changed it up a little bit than what is typically out there, but that's really to get a, to, to get an even deeper look as to some of the dietary and lifestyle and other things that you would want to mm -hmm. tweak or some additional supplementation that you might want to add beyond the foundational. Yeah. And to us, the foundational is foundational, right? Everybody needs that. And the um, foundational is kind of where the majority of the impact is, meaning totally. that, that, that delta value between let's fix what everybody needs or that personalization of let's scan my gut, which is maybe five or 10% of that, that personalization difference, right? Versus the 80%. So it, it, it's, it kind of speaks to what we've been, sort of screaming from the rooftops that yeah. your gut is it's it's that half a personalization where we know that it is a load on the system but yeah. what disease is going to express we we believe that it's been looked at wrong meaning you're not going to sequence the gut and then figure out this bacteria is this disease this bacteria is this disease right. it's more it's more like this is a hub and yeah. reason for why the body's metabolically unhealthy. Now, genetically, we can figure out where are you suboptimal and we know what disease is going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. If you have poor cellular structure in the endothelial, well, you're probably going to have a cholesterol problem and heart disease. You know, mm -hmm. if you're estrogen dominant and you're already having an estrogen toxic load on your system, you may end up with ovarian cancer or breast cancer. You know, 
it's kind of pairing and like you said, taking a more functional approach um, and that big data, I think the impact versus what you've already done, yeah. which you can then pair to genetics and understand where are you, you know, not doing well, you could predict what disease is coming totally. right? and, you, and yeah. you can prevent. So the bulk of the work is already done. So the good news is that people can take action right away. They don't need to wait for the big data solutions. Totally. Yeah. So totally. it's, you know, to me, it, it's going back to kind of basic truths about just healthy living, right? Mm. Uh, we know universally it's good for 99% of people to get some activity in your, in your lifestyle, right? To, to diversify your diet to a certain degree, to get enough sleep, right? We know that. We know that those are fundamental truths about kind of just being generally healthy. And, um, and, and that's the same with the microbiome. There's a general wellness uh, level to the microbiome that we are not achieving right now, because of course the world around us that we're all uh, accustomed, that we're all susceptible to works against that general level of healthiness within the microbiome, right? So we, that's the main thing that we need to start addressing and tweaking uh, before getting super deep dive into all of the right. individual microbes and so on, right? So you've done a great job sort of on the solution side. Do you have any thoughts or research on sort of what are the biggest threats? What are the things that are causing that sort of, you know, an unbalance? Yeah, so we've done a couple of studies on, on common um, drivers of dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Um, so number one, one of the, one of the most interesting studies we did, and, and I think it's published now is the study on the impact of glyphosate exposure mm-hmm. or roundup exposure on a pediatric microbiome, right? So we were one of the first to do a study on that showing that you, we could take what was, what was really kind of a pristine pediatric, a three-year-old microbiome, a three-year-old's microbiome, and then exposing it to approved levels of roundup. Uh, for a three-week period was enough to alter the microbiome to a point where it started looking like the microbiome of somebody suffering from inflammatory bowel disease, Mm. right, in a three-week period. And then we were able to fortunately be able to start recovering it once we started using the spore probiotics and things like that, even though we were continuously exposing it to, to Roundups just yet. But that's one of the most profound things we saw is that how quickly the microbiome can be damaged and right. start looking like a disease microbiome uh, with, with, with exposure to chemicals. So that's one of the key ones um, that we looked at. And then we also looked at um, a couple of uh, dietary components for people, for example, people with liver failure. Um, we, did a, we, we did a study on, on their intake of protein and saw that even you know slightly too high a protein can be really disruptive to them because uh, they can't clear ammonia well, right? And so uh, protein metabolism will increase their ammonia production and that actually creates, increases the pH in the gut, creates significant dysbiosis and can also disrupt them uh, overall metabolically and in, um, systemically as well. So we've, we've done some work on that and we, we wanna do more in that space, but, um, and we wanna do a couple more. We're doing a study on uh, antibiotics uh, coming up. And there's a number of studies already on antibiotics, but we want to do it more in a pediatric population, uh, which is going to be interesting to us because most of the studies on antibiotics are on adults, right? In terms of how the antibiotics impact the microbiome. What would be super interesting is to see how much more or less it impacts the pediatric microbiome, right? What, what is the profound mm-hmm. change and can that be recovered? Do you see 
the, any recovery naturally or with intervention. So those are the areas we're going into. And we, you said you did the work of understanding three weeks, first of all, is mind-blowing how right? quickly it can happen. Yeah. yeah, and imagine the 30-year-old with an autoimmune condition wondering why. If three weeks can cause something yeah. measurable, well, what if you did it for 30 years? Exactly. Right? You know? And, and what, we're talking about parts per million level, right, of, right. Of, of, the, of this kind of chemical exposure. So it's not even like we're dosing it at milligram doses. It's parts per million doses. Yeah. And then you have the parents that argue, you know, that it, it was it, it was the day that that environment changed, whether it's some shot or some environmental exposure that my kids started expressing something that we had labeled as autism. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the clinician, the scientist will argue that's not how it works. Right. <laughs> right. It's a genetic it's a gene genetic condition. But how do you argue with parents that say, well, it used to be one out of 10,000 kids. Now it's one out of 60. Exactly. The kids yeah. didn't change. We, we, mm -hmm. we can attest to the DNA is the same. Yep. It's the, the load or the exposure. Um, so would you suggest, or I don't know if the research is done yet, that if parents were to start working on supplementing early, that things of this nature like autism could be prevented? Yeah, not only, not only supplementing early in terms of the child, but even arguably more importantly for the pregnant mom. Right. Because okay. a lot of the risk factors that, are, that, that, that lead to an autism like gut, right? And there's a pretty signature gut microbiome for, for kids on the spectrum. Um, there are certain pathogens that tend to be high, like Clostridium bolte. Um, there are, um, you know, certain um, proteolytic organisms that tend to be higher than in kids without autism. There's low diversity issues again. Um, there's uh, too many, too many, too much production of branch chain uh, fatty acids, and like all these, there, there are very signature elements of an autism gut. And um, part of the scientific uh, studies show that that development actually occurs in utero mm -hmm. based on what's happening with mom, right? So we know that, for example, in humans, obese moms, overweight moms tend to have higher risk for, for delivering kids on the spectrum, right? And, and we know overweight and obese moms tend to have different microbiomes and they have different uh, profiles in their circulation. They have higher levels of LPS and other endotoxins that impact inflammation. We also know that there are compounds that are made in mom's microbiome that are essential for the development of the baby's brain. For example, peptidoglycan, right? There are microbes in mom's gut that produce peptidoglycan and release that peptidoglycan into mom's circulation. And the placenta has receptor sites and transporters for peptidoglycan, for bacterial peptidoglycan, transporting it to the baby's brain where the baby's brain has receptors for peptidoglycan. And the studies show that when you bind peptidoglycan, it initiates uh, synaptogenesis, it in initiates different cellular differentiation in brain development, it in initiates a production of the blood-brain barrier, hmm. um, and, and also the, the neurological growth in, in the brain itself. Um, and, and if you don't have enough exposure to peptidoglycan, you actually get certain levels of stunting of neurological growth and, and brain development. So it's, it's almost even more important in gestation where a lot of these changes can, can, can affect the growth of the fetus. And then once the baby comes out, there are some triggering elements, right? Like you said, there are literally thousands of moms that will swear up and down that their baby is fine until they got this shot, right? Mm -hmm. And then the day after they notice a difference, right? Now that's not scientific in the traditional scientific sense, but 
like you said, you can't ignore those moms, right? They know their child way more than any scientist will ever know from doing a double-blind placebo-controlled study. And, um, you know, and then you might not be able to find a direct causation between that shot and the development of spectrum disorders. But what that indicates is that that child's system was vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. And that shot is what we would call an environmental factor that mm -hmm. triggers and spins the body out of control. That's the same thing in autoimmune disease, right? It's pretty clear the work that Fasano and the people at Harvard have done is that you need, a, you need that third element, that environmental factor that then triggers the autoimmune response, mm -hmm. right? You have genetic susceptibility from SNPs on NOD2 receptors and so on, a number of different things. Then you have severe dysbiosis, right? So there's, there is a gut associated risk factor and then you need that environmental trigger. Uh, which can be, of course, antibiotics. It could be a uh, bad cold or flu. It could be a shock of some sort. So we can't ignore, you know, the the empirical evidence that we have mm -hmm. that there are triggers that can that can create this kind of problem in susceptible children, right? And not all children are susceptible, of course, because you can have a hundred million kids get a shot and be fine, and then that hundred one millionth kid will get a, something happening, right? But the but we still have to appreciate why was that child at risk of mm -hmm. developing something? Mm -hmm. And 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 the studies are clear that even in utero, that's where things can will, will start to go uh, awry. It's incredible because, uh, I mean, uh, expecting parents aren't taught to think that way, right? You, you give the example of this sort of obese uh, expectant, expectant mother mm -hmm. and what it took, the foods that it took to get there Mm -hmm. And we already know what those foods, how they're wreaking havoc on the gut. Yep. So I guess it's no surprise yep. that you would end up with a, in a state where the, the gut's, you know, screwed up, right? And it's going to lead to this suboperability, like you said. So um, would you recommend that people, uh, you know, do a stool test, send their samples in? And are the apps and the technologies that people are promoting in terms of here, know what to eat based on your gut, are they mature enough or are they still kind of in research phase? Yeah, I think there are some aspects of it that can be really helpful, but it really depends on whether or not you, you, you have the symptoms also, right? Because um, like your genetics, same thing with the gut, there's, there's tendencies and risks, right? Based on what your genes SNPs look like, what your genetics look like, and same thing with what your microbiome looks like. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the phenotype will turn out that way, right? Mm -hmm. Because there are many controlling factors in there in terms of gene expression and so on. And, um, and so the same thing with the microbiome. So you can get a test right now and it'll tell you things like don't eat spinach, right? right. Does that mean you shouldn't eat spinach? Likely not, because the signs between picking up this cluster of organisms or this cluster of RNA to eating spinach is bad for you, there's still a massive gap in there, right? right? And how you translate that is still, for the most part, in many of the companies that are doing it, it's still a black box, right? They're not revealing how they make those translations. And so that is problematic. And, and, and so when you look at translative science between microbiome, metagenomics, you know, what we, what we refer to as metagenomics, and then how your behaviors should, should change based on this data, you have to look at the things that are 
drawn up by consensus by lots of researchers studying it, right? And there are still a few things. So, for example, a couple of things that we've found is sulfate-reducing bacteria, right? So if you have high levels of sulfate-reducing bacteria and you eat lots of foods that are rich in sulfates, you're going to end up with large bowel distress because these foods, even though many of them are, are quite healthy foods, you know, like you take, you know, mushrooms and leeks and all these, there's a number of vegetables, um, you know, sauerkraut and um, not sorry, not sauerkraut, but uh, what sauerkraut is uh, made from cabbage and things cabbage, like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, they tend to be high in sulfates, right? And, and most people can endure them just perfectly fine and get all the benefit out of them. But people with high sulfate reducing bacteria will reduce a good amount of those sulfates into hydrogen sulfide. And that hydrogen sulfide is going to cause inflammation in the large bowel. Now, even if you have sulfate reducing bacteria, it doesn't mean all of it's going to get turned that way. But if you have the symptoms and you have sulfate, high levels of sulfate reducing bacteria, then it's a good idea to cut yeah. back, right? For example, you have large bowel distress, you get a lot of diarrhea, you get a lot of food sensitivity issues, all of these things that indicate inflammation in your large bowel and your, your microbiome analysis tells you you have high levels of sulfate-reducing bacteria, that's a good time to try to adjust that behavior. Yeah. So there's a few of those things, right, um, that, are, that are pretty clear across the board. And it has to be paired up with the symptomology. Because if the symptomology is not there, then there's likely some way that that's being overcome in your gut. Right. Mm -hmm. And and there may be another back set of bacteria that are breaking down the hydrogen sulfide. So it doesn't cause you that problem. Right. And I think uh, based on what you said, you know, that visceral response, like it, I had a symptom. One thing we've seen is there's certain foods that people aren't actually getting what they think they're getting. Meaning, for example, something like hummus mm -hmm. seems like it, it would be in the health food category. Yep. Right. And it was seemingly clean, but guess how many chemicals are used to dry chickpeas so that they can ship right. them, right? And if you're not, you know, drying the chickpeas yourself and, you know, which most people aren't, uh, things like bread, people wonder, well, my ancestors ate bread, you know, the people have been eating bread for a long time. Yeah, but same thing, there's chemicals used to dry the wheat, which in Europe are illegal. Yep. And in, in Canada, where I am, you know, because we have long winters, they're rampant, the usage of them in order to survive, we need, we need mm. bread. So yeah. uh, it's you often there's a mismatch to well my app said I could eat this, but I still right. don't feel right you know totally. so mm -hmm. yeah so you have to like you said how do you feel you you got to measure and track and take charge yourself that's there's there's guidance I definitely accept guidance but a lot of this stuff how much of it is a, a visceral response and how much of it is you can't feel inflammation and this is going to lead to a disease in ten years right. Right. You know, and that, that's a that's a really important question. Now, you can't feel inflammation, but you can certainly measure it. Right. Right. Um, and I think that's one of the important factors where we always promote working with some sort of health professional, right. um, because I think it's important for people at, at any age almost to kind of get a sense on where their body is. Uh, from a immunological and metabolic uh, profile, right? Mm -hmm. um, we do our normal, you know, a lot of people have these kind of wellness programs where they check your vitals, your blood pressure, your heart rate, they look at your cholesterol, you know, they look at those basic things. But, but what, is, what is clear, and, and it still baffles me that this isn't part of a regular wellness checkup, what is clear is that inflammation is the driver of all of these problems, right? right? 
inflammation has to exist in order for many of the chronic illnesses we deal with to, to actually mm -hmm. show up, right? We know that aging is driven by inflammation. We know that it's, it's called inflammaging, inflammaging. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know why we don't have a regular check on our inflammatory status, right? Whether it's simple things like high sensitivity CRP, interleukin-6, interleukin-12, you know, just a simple panel a cytokine panel of some sort. Uh, but to me, that's something that's absolutely critical for people. You have to get a sense on where your level of systemic inflammation is, you know, at least once a year or mm -hmm. twice a year, right? Um, and like you said, there are lots of those silent culprits where your current diet, the things you're eating, you may not feel it, but it may be setting you up for foundation of chronic illness because of the inflammation it creates. Um, but you would know you wouldn't know that until you test it. So it sounds like you know if someone were someone were to ask you, okay, well if I if I take action on this and I start to take care of my gut, what kind of diseases can I prevent? And it sounds like the answer is well, everything because yeah, if, if, yeah if, if 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 inflammation is the root, um, and it's not the only reason why diseases happen, but we're saying that for a large part, if you consider how we eat and what we're, what's available to us, the environmental exposures, the chemicals, things that you don't even know you're exposed to, you know, mm -hmm. cooking on a Teflon plant that seems safe, but for some women, it's a hormone disruptor and causing problems. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so really what we're saying is you name a chronic disease, we yep. can probably bring it back to the gut in some way or the other. Yeah. Inflammation is a, is a key aspect of it. And the biggest source of chronic inflammation is a dysbiotic gut and the intestinal permeability that goes along with it. Um, there's this, the condition called metabolic endotoxemia, or it's sometimes referred to as postprandial endotoxemia. And that's the leaking through of, of LPS, which is an endotoxin that's produced largely in the gut. And then all of the inflammatory havoc that that creates in the body. Mm -hmm. um, I've written a couple of chapters now, one, one for a functional medicine textbook and another one for another book that's actually being published where we go through just dozens and dozens and dozens of references on meta-analysis studies and so on, showing how this type of inflammatory um, response is at the root cause of the vast majority of chronic illnesses, mm. you know, and, and it's much harder for chronic illness to develop if you don't have that inflammation, mm. right? So um, you, you, you have the genetic risk, you know, many of us have all kinds of genetic risks. Um, and then you have environmental triggers, but if the inflammation is not there, you still have some resiliency against the, the condition. And so, it becomes so important to manage and handle that inflammation in your body. And most people have no idea where their inflammation is until it's too late, right? Yeah. Until they feel and they, now they're diagnosable, whereas that condition was brewing in their system for the last seven, 10 years. Yeah, it's, it's challenging because the, the system you rely on isn't designed to do that work. Mm -mm. You know, it's, it's designed to mask the symptom. And do you have any challenges where, you know, what we're talking about is eliminating chronic disease if this is done properly and through and through to the end? Mm -hmm. Do you have challenges in, with resistance, meaning that, uh, you know, the certain parties are saying we need to get rid of these guys? <laughs> um, the biggest resistance comes from the interventions that we would use, right? So right. because we have the capability of developing and validating and utilizing low cost, natural 
non-patented you know, interventions like simple things like probiotics and prebiotics and all that. That's where most of the resistance is because those at some point become competitive to the bigger drug mm -hmm. uh, markets, right? The prescription drug markets. Um, that's where the resistance comes from. There isn't so much of a resistance on, you know, you're making people well, which means that they're not a big market for us because this wellness world that, that you and I are in is still a teeny, teeny, teeny fraction of the total right. population, right? Even though we reach a lot of people and we talk to a lot of people and we engage, when you really look at it, you go, wow, we live in a tiny little bubble of mm -hmm. wellness, right? The vast majority of people out there have zero clue that any of this exists. They've never heard of a summit. They've never heard of, you know, they don't use a probiotic. They've never used any of this stuff. And they mm -hmm. just kind of go to their regular doctor, you know, once every few years or when a problem comes up and that's it, right? Mm -hmm. They might be drinking Diet Coke still thinking that they're doing something healthy, right? That's, that's the mentality in the vast majority of people, right? right? So we're not challenging their, um, their, their market in the sense that they're the pool of sick people that they have and at their disposal. Uh, but it does become uncomfortable when low cost natural interventions start to catch on, you know, yeah. because then that can be a threat to the bigger markets of, of uh, prescription products and all that. And, and, and again, not that every prescription product is bad in any way, right? There are many things that people need to take and uh, can help and can save lives, but it's just not the, it shouldn't be the, the predominant mm -hmm. way of doing health and medicine, you know? Yeah, especially it's, when it comes to chronic conditions, like acute exactly. conditions, we, we understand, solve mm -hmm. the problem, emergency, get it out of the way. But even then, even with the acute condition, there may be something underlying that needs to be resolved once you yeah. put the bandaid on, right? So, you know, do you see, I, I, there's a lot of work you're doing behind the scenes in research and with other companies, Mm -hmm. Do you see a day where this becomes sort of common practice and you walk into your primary care MD and your gut's been already mapped and that's the map that you work off of? A hundred percent. Yeah. We, we, knowing all the things I know from behind the scenes, all of the work that's going on in the, in the data science, AI side, working with, um, you know, having some connection with insurance companies mm -hmm. and corporate wellness um, and then the big CPG companies, I work on a number of products, projects with big CPG companies. There's a massive, um, you know, uh, groundswell of interest in, in reshaping the paradigm around health, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think the big motivator for that, for, from all of these corporations and institute and all that is because the consumers are demanding that. Yeah. Right? yeah. They're getting more and more that way, right? So, Every time, anyone that's listening to this, right? Anytime you make a choice on a healthier option, right? Or anytime you sign up for a yoga class or anytime that you do, you go to this meditation retreat or you go and get your gene, your genetics tested just for wellness reasons, right? Um, those are the things, those things are recorded, right? Everything we do is recorded and, and datafied, right? And so all of these companies have access to that kind of information. So they're seeing this swelling of interest in wellness and preventative um, you know, um, notions and also in, in, in customers really want to understand their bodies better, right? So they're mm -hmm. seeing the number of people that are using 24 hour glucose monitors and aura rings and doing genetic testing and all that stuff. So they're all starting to realize that that's the future. 
Mm -hmm. right? That people want to know what's going on in their body. They want to be in control of what's going on in the body. They want to have some say in how they live and how their, their health and wellness outcomes look like. They're no longer just going to wake up and count on their doctor for their health, right? That's not the future. And so there is a massive groundswell and level of investment that I've never seen before in that side of the world. Mm -hmm. So there will be a time where you go to poop in the morning and your toilet is reading how right. a number of metabolites in your stool and the gases coming out and right. then even looking at certain genetic primers in your microbiome and then sending that data to your health cloud that's also measuring it from your sleep sensors on your bed from your met, you know metabolic your metrics uh, biometric sensors on your fingers and your toothbrush is measuring your uh, oral microbiome levels all of that stuff is happening um and 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 actually will will probably be uh come to fruition sooner than we think you know probably in the next 10 years i would say that's very cool so essentially it's kind of like this democratization we're taking this this hierarchy of I start with my doctor, that's the gatekeeper, yeah. and then I can access other stuff, right? And it's yeah. all siloed versus my health cloud. You know, you said it so beautifully, here's my health cloud. And the data is already there and it should be mm -hmm. in real time. I should not be waiting for something. Absolutely. I should be triggered that, by the way, this is off, that's off. Because yep. we are, we know these things already. The technology now exists. It's just the adoption. And I think when it's at that point, the clinicians will be using it as a tool. You'll see in primary care that you're not going for visits. You're picking up your phone and your, your clinician is actually reaching out to you to say, Hey, something's yep. off. What, I got not, these alerts. Yeah. yeah. Did you not sleep yeah. properly last night? Like what happened? So totally. I, I just took, uh, I, I should mention, I just got a new bed yesterday, which was absolutely fascinating. It's, it's one of those sleep number beds. Right. Okay. And, and I got it because I just want to be able to recline up while I'm at night, if I'm watching TV, that was my main motivation. <laughs> right. But I didn't even realize all the things it does. So then I slept on it last night and I opened up the app this morning. It had all of these biometrics for me to measure. Oh, cool. like, yeah, it measured all the different cycles of my sleep, how long I slept, my heart rate variability, my respiration rate, all this stuff. And I was like, holy cow, yeah. this thing is getting, now I'm like motivated to improve my sleep score. Right. So tonight I'm like, I'm getting to bed by midnight for <laughs> sure. You know, I want the score to go up. So yeah, it, it's all there. It's all going to start coming together in a singular hub that yeah. you, your healthcare practitioners, your doctors all will have access to. And it's all going to be, uh, you know, preventative, which is going to be awesome. Cool. One last thought. In general, nowadays, whenever we talk to anyone, that's call it from the biohacking wellness type space. And we ask them, you know, what do you suggest? Like, forget it, take everything aside. What's the one or two things people should do? And more often than not, it's intermittent fasting and good sleep. You know, is there a connection between those two things and the gut? Oh, a hundred percent. Yes. So I'm glad you asked me that. Cause if you would have asked me what are two couple things you would do, I would have probably laid out the same things. Okay. Cool. Um, and, and I started uh, intermittent fasting about four years ago. It's probably one of the best things I've ever done for myself, especially because I travel so much and I mm -hmm. eat everywhere. I'm eating outside 98% of the time. Right. Um, and then I, I, and then sleep is something that I'm, I'm battling to do better this year. Um, so intermittent fasting, in fact, increases the diversity within your microbiome. Mm -hmm. 
which is counterintuitive, right? You're like, wait, so not feeding my microbiome increases the diversity? Yes, because your microbiome is layered with different types of operators. You've got this top layer of primary fermenters or primary digesters. They digest all of the big macromolecules that come into your diet. Right. Mm -hmm. And then they create all of these secondary metabolites that feed the next layer of microbes that then need time to break down the secondary metabolites and produce tertiary metabolites. And during each of those layers of fermentation and digestion, you're getting all of these bioactive molecules that we need for our overall health and wellness, right? So mm -hmm. the secondary and tertiary metabolizers stop functioning when more food comes in. So we actually need periods of not having any food entering into the system in order for us to um, actually increase the diversity of all of those types of organisms. And then the second part is sleep. Your, your microbiome is a dineural, uh, dineural system as well. It works off of a 24-hour clock. There are microbes that get turned on in the nighttime that turn on housekeeping genes in your system overall, right? For example, mitophagy and autophagy, the cleaning up of mitochondria and cleaning up of cellular debris and all that is turned on to a certain degree by microbes in your microbiome. And those microbes only come on during rest states. Mm. So when you, when you go into the nighttime rest state, so having adequate sleep will actually help your microbiome trigger repair functions, not only in the microbiome itself, in the gut, but also systemically. So if you don't get adequate sleep, you don't get that repair, that housekeeping, that cleaning. And if you don't intermittent fast, you will actually not find enough diversity for your secondary and tertiary metabolizers. That's fascinating because a lot of people understand that we need rest and we need to call it recharge, but nobody knows what that charge is, like what's actually happening. And if you understand the mechanics of it, you get a little bit more motivated to do it. Totally. You know, it's, it's one thing to understand, hey, I need rest. It's another thing to understand, like there's an actual biological function that has to happen daily, 100%. you know, in order to have live with optimal age. And you wonder why then you're sick, you know? I work well off of visuals, right? In terms of motivating myself. So I'm sitting here in my office and it's like midnight and I'm still toiling away at something, reading articles, writing emails or something. And I can't help but visualize this whole set of microbes sitting there with like brooms and mops and shovels and all that, just going like, what the hell? Like, you know, yeah. we have less time to work now. We got to repair everything you yeah. did today, right? Yeah. And I have them, I had this visual of them getting frustrated because we're not giving them enough time. And then that's the kind of thing that motivates me and go, okay, I got to give my microbes time to fix me. So yeah. I got to get to bed, right? So if people think about it that way, this absolute biological validated scientific reasons for having to do these things like sleeping. And, and it's so clear. The science can't be more clear on this. Well, this was honestly very fascinating. It was all we were hoping to talk about was, hey, how do, why does your product work? But we went so much farther to understand why the gut is so important. We've been hearing this. We talk about it. It's, there's, you know, Instagram posts, blogs, all everyone's talking, but we don't know why. Right. And, and the why, I think a lot of people have been pointed in the wrong direction of, well, the big data will tell us why one day, right? Uh, and I think there's some truth to that, but I don't, really, we don't need to wait. There's, there's enough knowledge today. There's enough actionable work we can be doing today. Uh, and you're part of that. You pioneered it and made it happen, you know? So Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I, I appreciate that. And, you know, that, that was kind of our, our impetus when we first came out is we're like, 
you know, how do we solve some of the existing problems that we know we can solve? We know enough now to solve those problems. Right. We know enough about microbes to utilize the right microbes to make an impact. Um, and, and at the end of the day, it's really about people understanding this stuff that makes them appreciate it. Right. If you don't understand it, you're not going to appreciate it. Yeah. Most people don't appreciate quantum mechanics because they don't understand it. Right? <laughs> even, even the people that study it don't understand it. So it's hard to appreciate it. So yeah. I appreciate the opportunity to get to talk about this. So thanks for having me on. Yeah. And you made it very simple and easy to understand. So thank you again for joining. It was awesome. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. All right.